How Fear Departed from the Long Gallery by E. F. Benson Read by Richard Crowest Church Peveril is a house so beset and frequented by spectres, both visible and audible, that none of the family which it shelters under its acre and a half of green copper roofs takes psychical phenomena with any seriousness. For to the Peverils the appearance of a ghost is a matter of hardly greater significance than is the appearance of the post to those who live in more ordinary houses. It arrives, that is to say, practically every day, it knocks, or makes other noises, it is observed coming up the drive or in other places. I myself, when staying there, have seen the present Mrs. Peveril, who is rather short-sighted, peer into the dusk while we were taking our coffee on the terrace after dinner, and say to her daughter, "'My dear, was that not the blue lady who has just gone into the shrubbery? I hope she won't frighten Flo. Whistle for Flo, dear.' Flo, it may be remarked, is the youngest and most precious of many Dachshunds.' Blanche Peveril gave a cursory whistle and crunched the sugar left unmelted at the bottom of her coffee cup between her very white teeth. "'Oh, darling, Flo isn't so silly as to mind,' she said. "'Poor blue Aunt Barbara is such a bore. Whenever I meet her she always looks as if she wanted to speak to me, but when I say, "'What is it, Aunt Barbara?' she never utters but only points somewhere towards the house, which is so vague.' I believe there was something she wanted to confess about two hundred years ago, but she has forgotten what it is. Here Flo gave two or three short, pleased barks and came out of the shrubbery, wagging her tail, and capering round what appeared to me to be a perfectly empty space on the lawn. There, Flo has made friends with her, said Mrs. Peveril. I wonder why she dresses in that very stupid shade of blue. From this it may be gathered that even with regard to psychical phenomena there is some truth in the proverb that speaks of familiarity. Uh, but the Peverils do not exactly treat their ghosts with contempt, since most of that delightful family never despised anybody except such people as avowedly did not care for hunting or shooting or golf or skating. And as all of their ghosts are of their family, it seems reasonable to suppose that they all, even the poor blue lady, excelled at one time in field sports. So far, then, they harbour no such unkindness or contempt, but only pity. Of one Peveril, indeed, who broke his neck in vainly attempting to ride up the main staircase on a thoroughbred mare after some monstrous and violent deed in the back garden, they are very fond, and Blanche comes downstairs in the morning with an eye unusually bright when she can announce that Master Antony was very loud last night. He, apart from the fact of his having been so foul a ruffian, was a tremendous fellow across country, and they like these indications of the continuance of his superb vitality. In fact, it is supposed to be a compliment, when you go to stay at Church Peveril, to be assigned a bedroom which is frequented by defunct members of the family. It means that you are worthy to look on the august and villainous dead, and you will find yourself shown into some vaulted or tapestried chamber without benefit of electric light, and are told that great-great-grandmamma Bridget occasionally has vague business by the fireplace, but it is better not to talk to her, and that you will hear Master Antony awfully well if he attempts the front staircase any time before morning. There you are left for your night's repose, and, having quakingly undressed, begin reluctantly to put out your candles.' 
It is draughty in these great chambers, and the solemn tapestry swings and bellows and subsides, and the firelight dances on the forms of huntsmen and warriors and stern pursuit. Then you climb into your bed, a bed so huge that you feel as if the desert of Sahara was spread before you, and pray like the mariners who sailed with St. Paul for day. And all the time you are aware that Freddy and Harry and Blanche, and possibly even Mrs. Peveril, are quite capable of dressing up and making disquieting tappings outside your door, so that when you open it some inconjecturable horror fronts you. For myself, I stick steadily to the assertion that I have an obscure valvular disease of the heart, and so sleep undisturbed in the new wing of the house where Aunt Barbara and Great-Grandmama Bridget and Master Antony never penetrate. I forget the details of Great-Grandmama Bridget, but she certainly cut the throat of some distant relation before she disemboweled herself with the axe that had been used at Agincourt. Before that she led a very sultry life, crammed with amazing incident. But there is one ghost at Church Peveril at which the family never laugh, in which they feel no friendly and amused interest, and of which they only speak just as much as is necessary for the safety of their guests. More properly it should be described as two ghosts, for the haunt in question is that of two very young children who were twins— these, not without reason, the family take very seriously indeed. The story of them, as told me by Mrs. Peveril, is as follows. In the year 1602, the same being the last of Queen Elizabeth's reign, a certain Dick Peveril was greatly in favour at court. He was brother to Master Joseph Peveril, then owner of the family house and lands, who, two years previously, at the respectable age of seventy-four, became father of twin boys, first born of his progeny. It is known that the royal and ancient virgin had said to handsome Dick, who was nearly forty years his brother's junior, "'It is pity that you are not master of Church Peveril,' and these words probably suggested to him a sinister design." Be that as it may, handsome Dick, who very adequately sustained the family reputation for wickedness, set off to ride down to Yorkshire, and found that, very conveniently, his brother Joseph had just been seized with an apoplexy, which appeared to be the result of a continued spell of hot weather, combined with the necessity of quenching his thirst with an augmented amount of sack, and had actually died while handsome Dick, with God knows what thoughts in his mind, was journeying northwards. Thus it came about that he arrived at Church Peveril just in time for his brother's funeral. It was with great propriety that he attended the obsequies, and returned to spend a sympathetic day or two of mourning with his widowed sister-in-law, who was but a faint-hearted dame, little fit to be mated with such hawks as these. On the second night of his stay he did that which the Peverils regret to this day. He entered the room where the twins slept with their nurse— and quietly strangled the latter as she slept. Then he took the twins and put them into the fire which warms the long gallery. The weather, which up to the day of Joseph's death had been so hot, had changed suddenly to bitter cold, and the fire was heaped high with burning logs and was exultant with flame. In the core of this conflagration he struck out a cremation chamber, and into that he threw the two children— stamping them down with his riding-boots. They could just walk, but they could not walk out of that ardent place. 
it is said that he laughed as he added more logs. Thus he became master of Church Peveril. The crime was never brought home to him, but he lived no longer than a year in the enjoyment of his blood-stained inheritance. When he lay a-dying, he made his confession to the priest who attended him, but his spirit struggled forth from its fleshly coil before absolution could be given him. On that very night there began in Church Peveril the haunting, which to this day is but seldom spoken of by the family, and then only in low tones and with serious mien. For only an hour or two after handsome Dick's death, one of the servants passing the door of the long gallery heard from within peals of the loud laughter, so jovial and yet so sinister, which he had thought would never be heard in the house again. In a moment of that cold courage which is so nearly akin to mortal terror, he opened the door and entered, expecting to see he knew not what manifestation of him who lay dead in the room below. Instead, he saw two little white-robed figures toddling towards him hand in hand across the moonlit floor. The watchers in the room below ran upstairs, startled by the crash of his fallen body, and found him lying in the grip of some dread convulsion. Just before morning he regained consciousness and told his tale. Then, pointing with trembling and ash-grey finger towards the door, he screamed aloud, and so fell back dead. During the next fifty years this strange and terrible legend of the twin babies became fixed and consolidated. Their appearance, luckily for those who inhabit the house, was exceedingly rare, and during these years they seem to have been seen four or five times only. On each occasion they appeared at night, between sunset and sunrise, always in the same long gallery, and always as two toddling children, scarcely able to walk and on each occasion the luckless individual who saw them died, either speedily or terribly, or with both speed and terror, after the accursed vision had appeared to him. Sometimes he might live for a few months. He was lucky if he died, as did the servant who first saw them, in a few hours. Vastly more awful was the fate of a certain Mrs. Canning, who had the ill luck to see them in the middle of the next century— or to be quite accurate, in the year 1760. By this time the hours and the place of their appearance were well known, and, as up till a year ago, visitors were warned not to go between sunset and sunrise into the long gallery. But Mrs. Canning, a brilliantly clever and beautiful woman, admirer also and friend of the notorious sceptic Monsieur Voltaire, Wilfully went and sat night after night, in spite of all protestations, in the haunted place. For four evenings she saw nothing, but on the fifth she had her will, for the door in the middle of the gallery opened, and there came toddling towards her the ill-omened innocent little pair. It seemed that even then she was not frightened, but she thought good, poor wretch, to mock at them, telling them it was time for them to get back into the fire." They gave no word in answer, but turned away from her, crying and sobbing. Immediately after they disappeared from her vision, and she rustled downstairs to where the family and guests in the house were waiting for her, with the triumphant announcement that she has seen them both, 
and must needs write to Monsieur Voltaire, saying that she had spoken with spirits made manifest. It would make him laugh. But when, some months later, the whole news reached him, he did not laugh at all. Mrs. Canning was one of the great beauties of her day, and in the year 1760 she was at the height and zenith of her blossoming. The chief beauty, if it is possible to single out one point where all was so exquisite, lay in the dazzling colour and incomparable brilliance of her complexion. She was now just thirty years of age, but in spite of the excesses of her life retained the snow and roses of girlhood, and she courted the bright light of day which other women shunned, for it but showed to great advantage the splendour of her skin. In consequence, she was very considerably dismayed one morning, about a fortnight after her strange experience in the long gallery, to observe on her left cheek, an inch or two below her turquoise-coloured eyes, a little greyish patch of skin, about as big as a threepenny piece. It was in vain that she applied her accustomed washes and unguents, vain too were the arts of her fardeurs and of her medical adviser. For a week she kept herself secluded, martyring herself with solitude and unaccustomed physics, and for result at the end of the week she had no amelioration to comfort herself with. Instead this woeful grey patch had doubled itself in size. Thereafter the nameless disease, whatever it was, developed in new and terrible ways. From the centre of the discoloured place there sprouted forth little lichen-like tendrils of greenish-grey, and another patch appeared on her lower lip. This too soon vegetated, and one morning, on opening her eyes to the horror of a new day, she found that her vision was strangely blurred. She sprang to her looking-glass, and what she saw caused her to shriek aloud with horror. From under her upper eyelid a fresh growth had sprung up, mushroom-like, in the night, and its filaments extended downwards, screening the pupil of her eye. Soon after her tongue and throat were attacked, the air passages became obstructed, and death by suffocation was merciful after such suffering." More terrible yet was the case of a certain Colonel Blantyre, who fired at the children with his revolver. What he went through is not to be recorded here. It is this haunting, then, that the Peverells take quite seriously, and every guest on his arrival in the house is told that the long gallery must not be entered after nightfall on any pretext whatever. By day, however, it is a delightful room, and intrinsically merits description, apart from the fact that the due understanding of its geography is necessary for the account that here follows. It is full eighty feet in length, and is lit by a row of six tall windows looking over the gardens at the back of the house. A door communicates with the landing at the top of the main staircase, and about halfway down the gallery in the wall facing the windows is another door communicating with the back staircase and servants' quarters, and thus the gallery forms a constant place of passage for them in going to the rooms on the first landing. It was through this door that the baby figures came when they appeared to Mrs. Canning, and on several other occasions they have been known to make their entry here, for the room out of which handsome Dick took them lies just beyond at the top of the back stairs. Further on again in the gallery is the fireplace into which he thrust them, and at the far end a large bow window looks straight down the avenue. 
Above this fireplace there hangs with grim significance a portrait of handsome Dick, in the insolent beauty of early manhood, attributed to Holbein, and a dozen other portraits of great merit face the windows. During the day this is the most frequented sitting-room in the house, for its other visitors never appear there then, nor does it then ever resound with the harsh, jovial laugh of handsome Dick, which sometimes, after dark has fallen, is heard by passers-by on the landing outside. But Blanche does not grow bright-eyed when she hears it. She shuts her ears and hastens to put a greater distance between her and the sound of that atrocious mirth. But during the day the long gallery is frequented by many occupants, and much laughter in no wise sinister or saturnine resounds there. When summer lies hot over the land, those occupants lounge in the deep window seats, and when winter spreads his icy fingers and blows shrilly between his frozen palms, congregate round the fireplace at the far end, and perch in companies of cheerful chatterers upon sofa and chair and chair-back and floor. Often have I sat there on long August evenings up till dressing-time, but never have I been there when anyone has seemed disposed to linger over late without hearing the warning, "'It is close on sunset. Shall we go?' Later on, in the shorter autumn days, they often have tea laid there, and sometimes it has happened that, even while merriment was most uproarious, Mrs. Peveril has suddenly looked out of the window and said, "'My dears, it is getting so late.' Let us finish our nonsense downstairs in the hall. And then, for a moment, a curious hush always falls on loquacious family and guests alike, and, as if some bad news had just been known, we all make our silent way out of the place. But the spirits of the Peverils, of the living ones, that is to say, are the most mercurial imaginable, and the blight which the thought of handsome Dick and his doings casts over them passes away again with amazing rapidity. A typical party, large, young, and peculiarly cheerful, was staying at Church Peveril shortly after Christmas last year, and, as usual, on December the 31st, Mrs. Peveril was giving her annual New Year's Eve ball. The house was quite full, and she had commandeered as well the greater part of the Peveril Arms to provide sleeping quarters for the overflow from the house. For some days past a black and windless frost had stopped all hunting, but it is an ill windlessness that blows no good, if so mixed a metaphor may be forgiven, and the lake below the house had for the last day or two been covered with an adequate and admirable sheet of ice. Everyone in the house had been occupied all morning of that day in performing swift and violent manoeuvres on the elusive surface, and as soon as lunch was over we all, with one exception, hurried out again. This one exception was Madge Dalrymple, who had had the misfortune to fall rather badly earlier in the day, but hoped, by resting her injured knee instead of joining the skaters again, to be able to dance that evening. The hope, it is true, was the most sanguine sort, for she could but hobble ignobly back to the house, but with the breezy optimism which characterises the Peverils, she is Blanche's first cousin, she remarked that it would be but tepid enjoyment that she could, in her present state, derive from further skating, and thus she sacrificed little, but might gain much. Accordingly, after a rapid cup of coffee which was served in the long gallery, we left Madge comfortably reclined on the big sofa at right angles to the fireplace, with an attractive book to beguile the tedium till tea. 
Being of the family, she knew all about handsome Dick and the babies, and the fate of Mrs. Canning and Colonel Blantyre, but as we went out I heard Blanche say to her, "'Don't run it too fine, dear,' and Madge had replied, "'No, I'll go away well before sunset.' And so we left her alone in the long gallery. Madge read her attractive book for some minutes, but failing to get absorbed in it, put it down and limped across to the window. Though it was still but little after two, it was but a dim and uncertain light that entered, for the crystalline brightness of the morning had given place to a veiled obscurity produced by flocks of thick clouds which were coming sluggishly up from the northeast. Already the whole sky was overcast with them, and occasionally a few snowflakes fluttered waveringly down past the long windows. From the darkness and bitter cold of the afternoon it seemed to her that there was like to be a heavy snowfall before long, and these outward signs were echoed inwardly in her by that muffled drowsiness of the brain, which to those who are sensitive to the pressures and lightness of weather portends storm. Madge was peculiarly the prey of such external influences. To her a brisk morning gave an ineffable brightness and briskness of spirit, and, correspondingly, the approach of heavy weather produced a somnolence in sensation that both drowsed and depressed her. It was in such mood as this that she limped back again to the sofa beside the log fire. The whole house was comfortably heated by water-pipes, and though the fire of logs and peat, an adorable mixture, had been allowed to burn low, the room was very warm. Idly she watched the dwindling flames, not opening her book again, but lying on the sofa with face towards the fireplace, intending drowsily and not immediately to go to her own room, and spend the hours until the return of the skaters made gaiety in the house again, in writing one or two neglected letters. Still drowsily she began thinking over what she had to communicate— one letter several days overdue should go to her mother, who was immensely interested in the psychical affairs of the family. She would tell her how Master Antony had been prodigiously active on the staircase a night or two ago, and how the blue lady, regardless of the severity of the weather, had been seen by Mrs. Peveril that morning strolling about. It was rather interesting. The blue lady had gone down the laurel walk, and had been seen by her to enter the stables, where, at that moment, Freddy Peveril was inspecting the frost-bound hunters. Identically, then, a sudden panic had spread through the stables, and the horses had whinnied and kicked and shied and sweated. Of the fatal twins nothing had been seen for many years past, but, as her mother knew, the Peverils never used the long gallery after dark. Then, for a moment, she sat up, remembering that she was in the long gallery now. But it was still a little after half-past two, and if she went to her room in half an hour she would have ample time to write this and another letter before tea. Till then she would read her book, but she found she had left it on the window-sill, and it seemed scarcely worth while to get it. She felt exceedingly drowsy. The sofa where she lay had been recently recovered in a greyish-green shade of velvet, somewhat the colour of lichen. It was of very thick, soft texture, and she luxuriously stretched her arms out, one on each side of her body, and pressed her fingers into the nap. How horrible that story of Mrs. Canning was! The growth on her face was of the colour of lichen. 
and then, without further transition or blurring of thought, Madge fell asleep. She dreamed. She dreamed that she awoke and found herself exactly where she had gone to sleep, and in exactly the same attitude. The flames from the logs had burned up again and leaped on the walls, fitfully illuminating the picture of handsome Dick above the fireplace. In her dream she knew exactly what she had done today, and for what reason she was lying here now instead of being out with the rest of the skaters. She remembered also, still dreaming, that she was going to write a letter or two before tea, and prepared to get up in order to go to her room. As she half rose she caught sight of her own arms lying out on each side of her on the grey velvet sofa. But she could not see where her hands ended and where the grey velvet began. Her fingers seemed to have melted into the stuff. She could see her wrists quite clearly, and a blue vein on the backs of her hands, and here and there a knuckle. Then, in her dream, she remembered the last thought which had been in her mind before she fell asleep, namely the growth of the lichen-coloured vegetation on the face and the eyes and the throat of Mrs. Canning. At that thought the strangling terror of real nightmare began. She knew that she was being transformed into this grey stuff, and she was absolutely unable to move. Soon the grey would spread up her arms and over her feet. When they came in from skating they would find here nothing but a huge misshapen cushion of lichen-coloured velvet, and that would be she. The horror grew more acute, and then by a violent effort she shook herself free of the clutches of this very evil dream, and she awoke. For a minute or two she lay there, conscious only of the tremendous relief at finding herself awake. She felt again with her fingers the pleasant touch of the velvet, and drew them backwards and forwards, assuring herself that she was not, as her dream had suggested, melting into greyness and softness. But she was still, in spite of the violence of her awakening, very sleepy, and lay there till, looking down, she was aware that she could not see her hands at all. It was very nearly dark. At that moment a sudden flicker of flame came from the dying fire, and a flare of burning gas from the peat flooded the room. The portrait of handsome Dick looked evilly down on her, and her hands were visible again. And then a panic worse than the panic of her dreams seized her, Daylight had altogether faded, and she knew that she was alone in the dark in the terrible gallery. This panic was of the nature of nightmare, for she felt unable to move for terror. But it was worse than nightmare, because she knew she was awake. And then the full cause of this frozen fear dawned on her. She knew with the certainty of absolute conviction that she was about to see the twin babies. She felt a sudden moisture break out on her face, and within her mouth her tongue and throat went suddenly dry, and she felt her tongue grate along the inner surface of her teeth. All power of movement had slipped from her limbs, leaving them dead and inert, and she stared with wide eyes into the blackness. The spurt of flame from the peat had burned itself out again, and darkness encompassed her. Then, on the wall opposite her, facing the windows, there grew a faint light of dusky crimson. For a moment she thought it but heralded the approach of the awful vision. 
Then hope revived in her heart, and she remembered that thick clouds had overcast the sky before she went to sleep, and guessed that this light came from the sun not yet quite sunk and set. This sudden revival of hope gave her the necessary stimulus, and she sprang off the sofa where she lay. She looked out of the window and saw the dull glow on the horizon, but before she could take a step forward it was obscured again. A tiny sparkle of light came from the hearth which did no more than illuminate the tiles of the fireplace, and snow falling heavily tapped at the window panes. There was neither light nor sound except these. But the courage that had come to her, giving her the power of movement, had not quite deserted her, and she began feeling her way down the gallery. And then she found that she was lost. She stumbled against a chair, and recovering herself, stumbled against another. Then a table barred her way, and, turning swiftly aside, she found herself up against the back of a sofa. Once more she turned and saw the dim gleam of the firelight on the side opposite to that on which she expected it. In her blind groping she must have reversed her direction. But which way was she to go now? She seemed blocked in by furniture— and all the time insistent and imminent was the fact that the two innocent, terrible ghosts were about to appear to her. Then she began to pray. Lighten our darkness, O Lord, she said to herself, but she could not remember how the prayer continued, and she had sore need of it. There was something about the perils of the night. All this time she felt about her with groping, fluttering hands. The fire glimmer which should have been on her left was on her right again, and therefore she must turn herself round again. Lighten our darkness, she whispered, and then aloud she repeated, Lighten our darkness. She stumbled up against a screen, and could not remember the existence of any such screen. Hastily she felt beside it with blind hands, and touched something soft and velvety. Was it the sofa on which she had lain? If so, where was the head of it? It had a head and a back and feet. It was like a person, all covered with grey lichen. Then she lost her head completely. All that remained to her was to pray. She was lost, lost in this awful place where no one came in the dark except the babies that cried. And she heard her voice rising from whisper to speech and speech to scream. She shrieked out the holy words, she yelled them as if blaspheming, and she groped among tables and chairs and the pleasant things of ordinary life which had become so terrible. Then came a sudden and awful answer to her screamed prayer. Once more a pocket of inflammable gas in the peat on the hearth was reached by the smouldering embers, and the room started into light. She saw the evil eyes of handsome Dick, she saw the little ghostly snowflakes falling thickly outside, and she saw where she was, just opposite the door through which the terrible twins made their entrance. Then the flame went out again, and left her in blackness once more. But she had gained something, for she had her geography now. The centre of the room was bare of furniture, and one swift dart would take her to the door of the landing above the main staircase and into safety. In that gleam she had been able to see the handle of the door, bright brassed, luminous like a star. She would go straight for it. It was but a matter of a few seconds now. She took a long breath, partly of relief, partly to satisfy the demands of her galloping heart. 
but the breath was only half taken when she was stricken once more into the immobility of nightmare. There came a little whisper, it was no more than that, from the door opposite which she stood, and through which the twin babies entered. It was not quite dark outside it, for she could see that the door was opening, and there stood in the opening two little white figures, side by side. They came towards her, slowly, shufflingly. She could not see face or form at all distinctly, but the two little white figures were advancing. She knew them to be the ghosts of terror, innocent of the awful doom they were bound to bring, even as she was innocent. With the inconceivable rapidity of thought, she made up her mind what to do. She had not hurt them or laughed at them, and they, they were but babies when the wicked and bloody deed had sent them to their burning death. Surely the spirits of these children would not be inaccessible to the cry of one who was of the same blood as they, who had committed no fault that merited the doom they brought. If she entreated them, they might have mercy. They might forbear to bring the curse on her. They might allow her to pass out of the place without blight, without the sentence of death or the shadow of things worse than death upon her. It was but for the space of a moment that she hesitated. Then she sank down onto her knees and stretched out her hands towards them. Oh, my dears, she said, I only fell asleep. I have done no more wrong than that. She paused a moment, and her tender girl's heart thought no more of herself, but only of them, those little innocent spirits on whom so awful a doom was laid, that they should bring death where other children bring laughter, and doom for delight. But all those who had seen them before had dreaded and feared them, or had mocked at them. Then, as the enlightenment of pity dawned on her, her fear fell from her, like the wrinkled sheath that holds the sweet-folded buds of spring. "'Dears, I am so sorry for you,' she said. "'It is not your fault that you must bring me what you must bring, "'but I am not afraid any longer. "'I am only sorry for you. "'God bless you, you poor darlings.' "'She raised her head and looked at them. "'Though it was so dark, she could now see their faces, "'though all was dim and wavering.' like the light of pale flames shaken by a draught. But the faces were not miserable or fierce. They smiled at her with shy little baby smiles. And as she looked, they grew faint, fading slowly away, like wreaths of vapour in frosty air. Madge did not at once move when they had vanished, for instead of fear there was wrapped around her a wonderful sense of peace, so happy and serene that she would not willingly stir, and so perhaps disturb it. But before long she got up, and, feeling her way, but without any sense of nightmare pressing her on, or frenzy of fear to spur her, she went out of the long gallery, to find Blanche just coming upstairs, whistling and swinging her skates. "'How's the leg, dear?' she asked. "'You're not limping any more.' Till that moment Madge had not thought of it. "'I think it must be all right,' she said. 
I had forgotten it, anyhow. Blanche, dear, you won't be frightened for me, will you? But... but I have just seen the twins. For a moment Blanche's face whitened with terror. What? she said in a whisper. Yes, I saw them just now. But they were kind. They smiled at me, and I was so sorry for them. And somehow I am sure I have nothing to fear. It seems that Madge was right, for nothing untoward has come to her. Something, her attitude to them, we must suppose, her pity, her sympathy, touched and dissolved and annihilated the curse. Indeed, I was at Church Peveril only last week, arriving there after dark. Just as I passed the gallery door, Blanche came out. Ah, there you are, she said. I've just been seeing the twins. They looked too sweet and stopped nearly ten minutes. Let us have tea at once.' 